please stop clapping. I feel very uncomfortable. <laughs> um, hello, and welcome to the Navarra Media end of year slash Christmas slash general holiday Winterville roundup of 2023. Thank you so much for braving the wind and the rain and South London to come here. It was distressing for me also crossing the river. Um, so just to, I don't know, describe the context a little bit of the year that's just been. For me, when I was trying to think about how I wanted to frame this event and what I wanted to ask this illustrious panel beside me, um, it feels that 2023 is a year where the position of the public and most people, their desires and their political priorities is really, really far away from where the elites are. Whereas in 2022, there was a degree of responsiveness, particularly around things like energy bills. Right now, it feels like the political classes, whether they're wearing a red rosette or a blue rosette, are quite happy to be like, yeah, get fucked. We don't really care what you think. And that's the case, whether you're talking about the fact we've got crumbling infrastructure and neither party is willing to countenance a wealth tax, the fact that there is still a cost of living crisis and neither major party in Westminster wants to consider a rent cap or a rent freeze or some manner of rent controls. Or it might be the fact that Gaza continues to be bombarded and Labour refuses to join the Greens and the SNP in calling for a ceasefire. Now, if this was a New Statesman event, we would spend about an hour decrying the lack of nice things in politics and then the rest of the evening torpedoing any social movement dedicated to demanding nice things. But it's not that kind of event. Instead, there will be quality analysis from people who I'm proud to call my colleagues and my friends. So to my left, merely in seating and not politically, is Michael Walker. <laughs> <laughs> um, to Michael's left in every sense of the word, uh, we have Moya Lothian McLean. So Moya has been a newer hire for Navarra Media and I'm so excited by her work, which is a combination of reporting, cultural and political analysis. You will of course know her from hosting Navarra Live, but I'm also very happy to say that she will be one half of a quality podcast, also hosted by me, which will be coming out very, very soon. And what's it called, Moya? It's called If I Speak, in homage to Jose Mourinho. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, last but not least, is Owen Jones. Owen, who has got a portrait aging in an attic somewhere, has looked like this. It's Tony Blair. <laughs> <laughs> Um, he starts a starts every day by opening Twitter, checking if he's still trending, and then drinking <laughs> a cup of stem cells. Um, <laughs> so, topic numero uno is... What's going on in Westminster? So in case you have been mercifully in an induced coma for the past 12 months, let me just catch you up. Uh, Labour still have a comfortable 20-point lead over the Conservative Party, one which they are not um, wanting to disrupt too much by doing anything different from a historically unpopular Conservative Party. Rishi Sunak, by some incredible shattering of the glass ceiling, has managed to poll worse than Liz Truss after she crashed the economy. And he's done that just by being uncharismatic and kind of needy looking. Um, <laughs> and I guess the really big questions, um, other than why is Rishi Sunak like that? Um, <laughs> 
Uh, the really big questions looking ahead to 2024 are what might a Labour government be like? Will they shift left while in power or continue a slide rightwards? How did the Tories end up fucking it so badly? And is there any chance of them achieving a miraculous political recovery ahead of our next trip to the ballot box? But Michael, first question is for you. Look me in the eyes right now. Are you going to vote Labour in 2024? Oh, me? Uh, it doesn't matter who I vote for because I live in North Hackney. But I would... I probably won't unless they reinstate Diane Abbott because she would be my MP. But if I lived in a marginal, I probably would. You know? Are you of the mind that any Labour government is better than a Tory government? Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm that sort of classic swing voter. I'm in a mood for a change. <laughs> I think it's time for a change, don't you think? <laughs> give the other guys a chance this is the workington man himself um and i suppose the the last thing on the topic of labor because i know that you follow this very very closely is looking at keir starmer's political trajectory since he became labor leader in 2020 what do you think we can expect from him in government probably failure I think he doesn't seem to be particularly... I mean, I mean, everyone says he doesn't seem to be politically astute, but he is 25 points ahead in the polls, which, you know, does in a way speak for itself. He hasn't said anything that's made it seem like a Labour government is going to be particularly exciting. I think they'll probably build a few more houses than the Conservatives because their backbenchers are a bit less yimby. Um, I don't think they'll want migration to be a high salience issue, so they probably won't create intentional crises in the same way that the Tories have. Um, and one would imagine that they would you know, fund public services a smidgen more. Uh, but yeah, there's, there's not much to be excited about, which, you know, they haven't tried to excite us. So I'm, I'm almost, uh, I feel like it's not my project. And that's the reality. Um. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I mean, like, I love that you're like, it's not for me, babes. <laughs> it's just not for me. Um, Moya, in the dark wilderness years before you worked for Navarra Media, you memorably coined the phrase Keir Starmer is a wet wipe, which I know you're very proud of and love to be reminded of at every turn. Um, what do you think a Keir Starmer government might hold? Any surprises? I think there's, there's two things here that I want to pick up on. Firstly, I don't think a Keir Starmer government will hold any positive surprises, given the trajectory that we've already looked at. But there's a secondary sort of pattern that we've been witnessing. One of the questions you started with was how did the Tories fuck it so royally, which is how did they lose that, you know, the coalition they built in 2019, that's what we mean, right, when we say why did they fuck it so royally? Uh, what happened to the sort of reduce, I think you put it as the redistributionist? That is a word that I used in my briefing notes. Yeah, populism, redistributionist populism of Boris Johnson. And I, I think that ties in, why did they get rid of that policy so quickly firstly because they never really abandoned austerity they only did it when it was uh electorally popular the leader was you know the person who was pushing this and he won this eight seat majority so we're going to briefly pretend we're these these electoral these these populists the redistribution is populist but Rishi Sunak who's now in charge was always against that he was always very like here's a stranglehold of the economy Boris Johnson was all about fantasy right he wasn't about details he sold us this fantasy it came crashing down the moment he rubbed up against any sort of situation that needed detailed 
governance, like the COVID pandemic. As soon as he needed to be in charge of the details, it all came around down his ears. And I think what Keir Starmer is really scared of now and what he is confused about is this idea that he's going to project a fantasy too, that anything he promises is fantasy and that as soon as he gets into government, he's not going to be able to do it and it's going to come crashing down. But what he's gone, he's gone to the extreme in the other way because he's confused the idea of fantasy and ambition. So he has absolutely no ambition. And anything that's like ambitious or is now described as radical, which isn't really radical or it's just like mild social democracy, he's like, that's fantasy. It's all fantasy. We're not a government of fantasy, not like Boris Johnson. We're not this government of, you know, delusion like Rishi Sunak's Rwanda plan. We're going to be this government of pure pragmatism. And pragmatism has returned to the same ideological consensus, which is austerity. So I don't think we're going to get any positive surprises. I think we're going to get the same... We're going to get a John Major-esque government, I think personally of, of Rishi Can Sunak. I just say I didn't know there were briefing notes which is why I'm speaking like a yeah, random guy in a focus group. Those are my notes. <laughs> <laughs> Michael my never notes? checks his email. Some people are professionals, he Michael. He never checks his email. Oh, it was I my Navarra Media email. Yeah, and I, I, also, do, I don't check that I one. Also, I also briefed you in person. I came into the studio and I gave you a hug and I said this is what we're going to talk about. I knew there about. were four topics. I knew there were four topics. And he was just there, popping Brazil nuts into his mouth, being like, yeah, sounds great. <laughs> Sorry, that was a little bit of... Um... Ooh, topic two looks good. <laughs> <laughs> you can have your phone back out. Um, so, I mean, I know the obvious thing to do is ask you about the Labour Party, but actually I want to ask you about the Tories. What do you think the future holds for the Conservative Party? Because right now we're seeing this kind of right-wing rebellion brewing where first Suella Braverman and Robert Jenrick have had these high-profile departures from government so they can perhaps position themselves for a leadership contest. Where do you think the Conservative Party is going to go? Can the so-called centre hold, which is the sort of you know, technocrats of Rishi Sunak and David Cameron? Or is it going to be the, you know, Rwanda headbangers who take over? Well, I mean, firstly, Rishi Sunak, by the way, I thought he's more, I mean, he's, he's like a children's TV presenter whose career sliding, or that guy from The Inbetweeners. He sounds, just sounds exactly like... What's I've never name? watched The Inbetweeners. Inbetweeners well, honestly. he's not well, he's not a, a briefcase. I'm a geriatric millennial, so... Um, yeah, the Tories. Um... Well, firstly, I just think it's really important. I think any of the crises the Tories are in would have destroyed any other government on its own terms, um, whether that be obviously Partygate, uh, whether that be um, the cost of living crisis, whether that be the NHS collapsing. Liz Truss, obviously, I think just having um, three prime ministers in rapid succession is so ridiculous. But the, the reason that was such a big rupture is they tried to drive through economic policies which are toxic amongst the general public and they then crashed the economy and had terrible effects amongst homeowners who are core Tory voters, as well as people Phenomenal who... girl bossing on her part. I know. Phenomenal. I mean, you know, we all miss Liz Truss and the, the memes. But um, she, yeah, but she, so she crashed the economy. That with, was very geriatric, man. With, with right wing, right wing, can I get... I saw this really funny <laughs> gif on Liz Truss. She did, Ash, I stopped, she, I'm not joking, I stopped using gifs just because Ash keeps bullying me on WhatsApp. It's really humiliating um so i just think after the least trust experiment people just zoned out and in the sense of kind of it doesn't matter what you do or say now you're finished and we're not going to change our mind so in a sense that's my almost kind of like feel sorry for rishi sunak and in the sense there's nothing he could do to turn that around after that calamity but in terms of what happens next i think it's really interesting because 
I think there were some parallels with the US Republicans after George W. Bush. Um, and, I, you know, I, our analysis of what happened then, because I think there was some, some people like, this was a conventional centre-right party, and then it radicalised as though George W. Bush didn't unleash mass terror with the deaths of hundreds of thousands of, well, millions, actually, if you look at it. Uh, some of the latest research on the war on terror of predominantly Muslims across the world and, and the horrors that unleashed as well. Um, but, but after 2008, what happened to the Republicans is they became overwhelmed by this conspiratorial um, far-right extremism. Um, and what happened is the Republican establishment, um, what they did is they, they fostered and nurtured it and then they were eaten by it. So a good example is Liz Cheney. Liz Cheney, who, who is obviously the daughter of Dick Cheney, and she's cultivated this, you know, she's the never Trumper, sensible Republican. But in the early period of Obama, she was on TV um, 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 giving kind of like credence to the birther conspiracy that Obama, you know, wasn't actually, didn't have a birth certificate, he was foreign, all the rest of it. So they, they, what happened is those sorts of people nurtured something which then ate them. And you could see that, I saw that Tory conference, you know, and they would start going about 15 minute cities. It's like the most ludicrous thing I've ever, like, why were they doing that? You know, it's just this whole conspiracy, this far right conspiracy about 15 minute cities, uh, which is this totalitarian attempt by where your, your whole life will be under surveillance and you will be told when you're allowed to go to the shops or not. Uh, when actually it's just about having local amenities close to you where you can walk or cycle. It's just a basic good idea. But they started nurturing that kind of thing. And they obviously didn't believe it. But what they're doing is trying to, in particular with a reform threat, is they're trying to... Um, uh, you know, kind of, they think that if they give credence to that, and 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 that, then that will stop reform being a major threat. But the the, the story of this Tory government um, since 2010, what a ride it's been, is of Tory leaders giving red meat to the right flank of their party, and the right flank getting both fatter and hungrier. So David Cameron obviously just kept giving them red meat, and then he was eaten alive by them. Theresa May was then eaten alive by them. Um, and Rishi Sunak in the, in the same way, I mean, he's the most right-wing, I would say, conservative leader since Michael Howard. Uh, a lot of very, uh, uh, you know, gullible, centrist commentators felt just because of basically they're interested in vibes rather than substance. Um, they thought he was somehow more one of them. Uh, but, you know, he's, he's more ideologically right-wing than, um, I forgot Liz Truss, but she didn't count, uh, than Boris Johnson or Theresa May or David Cameron. Um, and I think what's going to happen is when they lose the election is whether or not Suella Braverman makes it into the final two, if she does, she does become leader. It depends basically on what the composition of the Tory parliamentary party is because they are headed for a really terrible defeat. Um, and so it depends, therefore, where, you know, how many MPs they have and, and how many of them would, would let her go into the final two. But in any case, she's won the battle of ideas because what will happen in that final two is the Tory candidate, who is the most extreme and fanatical, will win. And they will basically, the big thing if she's not in the final two, will be who gets Sorella Braverman's endorsement. So she will be seen as the kingmaker. So I think you might then think, well, they'll write themselves off and that'll be the end of the Conservatives. But I think that, you know, will destabilise um, further British politics because you'll have a Conservative Party which will indulge the most rampant extremism. The likes of GB News are whipping up that whole element of the right, that conspiratorial extreme far right. Um, and I think, you know, and also a lot of Democrats in America thought, well, you know, if Trump takes over the, uh, over the Republicans, then that's kind of hilarious, but it also means we've got democratic hegemony. Whoops, you know, the future of American democracy is now 
in serious question. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the idea of an American civil war, who would rule that out now? 10 years ago, you'd seem like a lunatic. To be fair, they've done it before. Who? American Civil War. I just listened to a podcast about it. That's why I'm talking about it. Um, I just had a terrible realisation that I always thought I was in favour of 15-minute cities, but it's going to be terrible for the podcast market. <laughs> we're going to have to make Navarro Live a lot shorter. That's one of our biggest markets, commuters, but we'll All right. work it out. So we're going to see like, Michael at a you know, 15-minute city protest like, <laughs> alongside Piers Corbyn and Tommy Robinson being like it's an assault on our freedom. It's be the next series of crash course against 15-minute cities. I mean, one... Make commutes longer. <laughs> I mean, one really quick final question for you, Michael, is one about political leverage. So at the start of Keir Starmer's leadership of the Labour Party, the idea was, well it's going to be a really close election, the next one. So he's going to need the left. There's going to have to be some kind of compact. And, you know, we'll accept being a junior partner, both in the shadow cabinet and in terms of policy. Now, that incentive clearly doesn't exist. So what should the left do to establish some kind of leverage over Keir Starmer, other than going through his rubbish and trying to find compromising material? Oh, it's a difficult question. I mean, I think at the next election, the left isn't going to have much leverage. You know, he, he's very far ahead in the polls. Um, the seats he's really sort of stressed about are not ones where I think the left will swing it. But I think that at the next election after that, they might do. And also there are certain elections where the left does have leverage. So I think Sadiq Khan is quite terrified of people voting to his left because they got rid of second preference voting, which I think was a terrible move for the Conservatives to do that. But it does mean that he is very worried about Greens getting votes and then the Tories getting through the middle. So there will be there will be sort of pressure points across the country where the left can have influence. I think the next Westminster elections probably aren't one of those, but the ones after that will be. I mean, I suppose in a broader way, the way I kind of think about that is, you know, the, when the Corbyn moment happened, a big problem was there weren't the institutions or the networks or the thinking to kind of make it work. And so in a way... I feel like we're kind of holding the fort until the next moment when sort of like the left really does have leverage. But um, apart from on particular issues and maybe the election one from now, um, I'm not sure how much leverage the left as the left has. So 2023 to me felt like the first year where politicians started taking AI seriously. At the beginning of the year, chat GPT emerges and I realized there's a much faster way to write my articles. Um, and what was interesting to me is that despite this being a government that likes to talk the big talk about tech and being at the cutting edge of innovation, there is a real complacency when it comes to artificial intelligence. Just in April, Jeremy Hunt was saying that he doesn't buy the idea that millions of jobs might be at risk because of automation. Now, that isn't what his government's own research has to say, or indeed... Um, OpenAI's own CEO and then former CEO and then CEO again. Is he back? Yes. Sam Altman? Um, what a dreadfully boring soap opera that was. Riveting. Um, <laughs> I watch EastEnders, thank you. Um, Sam Altman said, well, look, it's t customer service jobs which are first on the chopping block. Um, Sundar uh, Pichai, who's a Google executive, said the job losses give him sleepless nights. So what politicians are saying and what the industry is saying wildly, wildly different. Moya, I want to start with you because when we were chatting about this in the office, you were whatever the opposite fully automated luxury communism is. You are like, you know, moderately analog, you know, 
Luddite. Miserable Luddism. Luddite with a phone addiction. <laughs> um, but you, you're really sceptical of the idea that AI might end up being a good thing for workers and a good thing for the left. Could you explain why? I mean, I'm not Aaron Bastani, and he can make very good arguments about why it is a good thing for the left. And as we've talked about, Sam Altman's read Aaron's book, Fully Automated Luxury Communism. I think a lot of people in San Fran actually have. But... I think so long as that so long as we exist within sorry capitalism it will always things like AI will always be captured by capitalist interest and I think a good example of this is actually the open AI um palaver itself because what happened there was open AI is set up and it's meant they have a non it meant to be non-profit in some sense it's obviously massive profit so it's a multi-billion dollar company but it's meant to be for you know human good they have this board of people these directors who look after the company and they're chosen specifically to guide open AI towards good so that it is for human good and not just for profit um and what happened with the firing of Sam Altman who is primarily a venture capitalist that's where he's made his money. He also has, you know, he dropped out of a degree in computer science. He has the background, but he's not, first and foremost, doing the tech. He is the person getting the money. He is the face of OpenAI, and he's the one who's been going around, lobbying with governments, being like, we're really good. Also, we hold all this power, so you better be nice to us and help us design your regulation. Um, um, but he is like the venture capitalist guy. And this board were like, okay, OpenAI, we think we're getting too commercial. The chief scientist, Ilya Savetska, said, we think we're getting too commercial, we're moving away from the mission we have. And then they fired Sam Altman. Okay, it was a kind of like mad move, whatever. But that was the main basis behind it. We're getting too commercial. And what did Silicon Valley do? Did they say to the, did they listen to the board? Did they go, actually, you know what? We hear your concerns. Maybe this is getting too commercialized. Maybe this isn't moving in the right direction. No, they went, you are going to reinstate this man because he makes us shit loads of money. Like we're going to hire him at Microsoft and we're going to make your company have no value whatsoever. All you scientists, whatever. They basically bullied them through this thing. Like we, this man is more valuable to us than he, than your tech is to us. Like we can replace all you scientists over and over again but so long as we have the guy who makes his money the guy that we've picked our venture capitalist guy like we're happy so they basically it was like a, it was like blackmail they hired him at microsoft and then all the scientists were like oh shit we're going to be out of our jobs the shares plummeted all of that and then they were like we better bring him back the board's gone now this board of people chosen specifically to guide open ai towards this you know humanizing good mission are gone and they'll definitely be replaced by people who are more favorable to the commercial operation of open ai and i think that shows very easy like you can have the best laid intentions doesn't matter capital will always out the person who gets you the most money the way the tech is utilized for profit will always out. I mean, Owen, Keynes was predicting that by now we'd all be working 15-hour working weeks. And I might do that because I'm skiving, but I don't think very many people are. Um, so this sort of utopian idea that when you've got these technological you know, advances, it's going to break down the wage relation, and it's going to mean more freedom for workers, that doesn't happen. Um, but also maybe this idea of this huge, you know, raft of unemployed and unemployable people leaping up, maybe that doesn't happen either. Um, so I guess my question for you is, what do you think AI will do to the project of building workers' power in workplaces? Will it radically alter it and therefore alter left-wing strategy or are we all making a big hullabaloo over nothing 
But I mean, more spot on. In, it, it, technological development always depends in terms of the outcome on the balance of class forces. And when John May- Maynard Keynes made that prediction, 15 hours by now, which has not been met, is, uh, or even close, is, you know, that was in the aftermath of lots of struggles throughout the 19th century and the early 20th century, where you got a significant and massive, actually, reduction in working hours and indeed the securing of the weekend and, and things like that. And that was, you know, where you got... The, the you know strong labor movements which at great cost and sacrifice managed to reduce it and they managed to you know technological technological development aided that um and you know that if you look at the history of technological development what normally happens is it destroys lots of jobs but also creates lots of jobs so if you look at the advent of the personal computer that made lots of jobs redundant but it also created lots of or allowed or facilitated the creation of lots of other jobs as well you know, the argument that's been made at the moment is, you know, and it, this might be, it might turn out that it, history will just repeat itself, that this time is different and that lots of millions of jobs are at risk, not just as was the case in the past where it would have been often industrial jobs, but also those jobs which are classed as middle-class professional jobs, like accountants, I suppose is a really good example, um, or, you know, generic centrist commentators. Um but, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, so I think, in, you know, the argument we would make is if we had a stronger labour movement, then it would be about reducing the working week in the way that, and the working day uh, and making an argument about liberating humanity from uh, the authoritarian imposition of wage labour. Uh, the problem, the danger is that, um, you know, we see this at the moment, how technology is used in terms of things like surve- surveillance, where workers are technologies places workers under constant surveillance things like monitoring how often you go to the toilet and have a break you know in call centers that kind of thing and so that kind of really pernicious use of technology to oppress uh, workers and 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 to entrench the authoritarian nature of wage labor in modern britain Um, but if we had a stronger labor movement then what we would do is obviously harness ai in order to reduce you know, the four-day week campaign at the moment is doing great stuff. Um, and that whole campaign, that idea really is catching the imagination of lots of people. Um, and that would be, you know, to reduce the working week. The dangers with the AI at the moment is it will end up leaving lots of people without work, um, sec- without any secure work, uh, without, you know, offering any basic social security because that social security has been ripped away. So we've got a big fight in our hands because obviously we've got a crap Labour Party that's not going to do anything particularly good um, so the danger is that in the next few years there'll be a Labour government where lots of jobs will be at risk where social they're not making the case for social security um, and and I think a big crisis could emerge from that because what would be interesting about it is this idea of you know the graduate without a future where you get people who go you know, half of young people now go to university they're indebted and they often end up doing jobs they would have done without if they hadn't gone to university um but lots of now middle class professionals may find themselves out of work as well and historically that is the most that can create a very politically unstable group of people and it can go in lots of different directions and that's the sort of um group of people often quite right-wing extreme movements have often manipulated so i think there is a danger there in that in that regard and before i come back to you moya when i've spoken to you michael you've often been a bit more optimistic about AI. Um, I think you called me a Luddite once. Well, I don't check my email, so I'm not, <laughs> I'm not exactly a high-tech guy. Uh, I've got two different email accounts to check now, one from Navarro and one personal, and that's just overwhelmed me. I struggle to check two. 
but I'm not sure if I'm optimistic. I mean, I'm generally quite uh, optimistic about sort of technological advancement and economic growth in general. Um, I actually, though, on the AI stuff, take the existential threat stuff a bit more seriously than lots of the left. And I, I can see why... So nuclear option kind of thing. Uh, what, what if they get the codes? What, yeah, what if exactly. the app gets the codes? Well, what if we give them the codes? Like in that right? Marvel film where the app gets the codes and then he's got to fight Iron Man? Yeah, well, <laughs> <laughs> we might have to fight Iron Man. Or actually, who's on the good, who's on the good team? I don't know. I, don't, I didn't oh, watch God. the film. Plans I'm, for Marvel. No I'm going to try and ally with Iron Man. Um, I don't know if that's a good thing to do. I'm hoping it is. Um, <laughs> Uh, where was I? Yeah, I think the existential risk stuff is not necessarily ridiculous. I, th I think that the cynicism about it is warranted because there's obviously a very high chance that climate change is going to kill a lot of people. Um, but there's a very low chance it's going to kill everyone. And so I think Elon Musk and Sam Altman don't really care about it because it's going to kill people that aren't them. You know, people in sub-Saharan Africa or people in Bangladesh. And so they care a lot more about what they might call the 10% chance that AI kills all of us. So I think the fact that, you know, white guys in San Francisco, the people caring about existential risk is not coincidental because it is one of the few risks that might affect them. But just because I think there is some cynicism behind the concerns, I don't necessarily think the concern is ridiculous. Because especially if you look at it in terms of an arms race, so I mean, I think with Sam Altman, part of it was, yeah, the commercialization, but part of it was that he put on the board a few sort of people who were concerned about the existential risk that comes with AI. And they were concerned that he wasn't telling them everything he was doing. So they said, we can no longer trust you um, and we think you might end humanity. Um, so therefore we're gonna get rid of you. And then Microsoft was like, no, 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 no. That doesn't make sense. Um, so he's back. But then also you've got the-, the Microsoft are like, we would like you to end humanity, Yeah, maybe. Please. Well, it's only a 10% chance. Uh, but then there's also the competition between the United States and China, where you sort of have a similar dynamic to the nuclear arms race, where sort of like everyone admits, well, it'd be better if no one had nuclear, but if someone's gonna get super advanced AI, it might as well be us. Um, and then the difference between AI and nukes is, you know, the one thing we could always do was control the nukes because we were smarter than the nukes. But the AI is going to be smarter than us. So I, I actually do think the existential risk stuff is, is serious. I'm not necessarily smart enough to understand exactly why, uh, but I do take it seriously. Um, well, yeah. The one thing I wanted to quickly add is, in terms of labour, with AI, we're already seeing how it can be a motivating factor in labour disputes. So you look at the Hollywood actor's strike and you look at the writer's strike. AI formed one of the central parts of that strike, it motivated, you know, this strong organizing. And yeah, the things that they have agreed are only gonna hold for a couple of years and they're not comprehensive, but you saw mobilization based around AI. So there is a there is a preemptive concern there. And we are seeing already people starting to act in a way, I don't know, maybe they wouldn't have 10, 20 years ago around something else, which is exciting. That's, a, that's something to be optimistic about. And I feel we should try and be optimistic about some things. That was really nice. <laughs> Okay, so on to climate change. <laughs> this has been the hottest year on record, and I'm sure that next year will probably be the hottest year on record, and the one after that, the hottest year on record. This year, we have spent more time above a 1.5 degree average temperature increase than we have spent below it, which is very frightening for what that means in terms of climate tipping points, and really how little time we have to avert ecological collapse. 
Against this, frankly, terrifying backdrop, what we have is a completely bananas political consensus in Westminster, where both the government and the opposition are watering down their climate plans. Rishi Sunak, because he's under pressure from his party's right flank, Keir Starmer, because who knows. And the way I wanted to, I guess, frame this question is that we've seen Extinction Rebellion and Just Stop Oil do some quite impressive levels of mobilization. And their theory of change was if you get enough people out onto the streets, if you get enough people taking direct action and getting themselves arrested, that it creates a crisis of legitimacy for the state. The state will be forced to respond by taking action on climate change. That hasn't been what we've been seeing. What we've seen are arrests, what we've seen are draconian anti-protest laws being introduced, much more hardcore sentencing of climate protesters. And the government and the opposition both watering down their climate commitments. Um, I don't have anyone in particular I'm addressing this question to, so whoever wants to take it first. Do you think that we're seeing evidence that the Extinction Rebellion, Just Up Oil theory of change simply doesn't work? That the strategy is flawed? Well, on Extinction Rebellion, look, I mean, there was, I know there was quite interesting left critiques at the time in 2019, particularly kind of just, you know, this argument of just saying people should have these confrontations which cause mass arrests, which was easy for often white activists to say because obviously the different experiences. I'm fine with white people getting arrested, <laughs> by the way. But I mean, it was just like, it was kind of like everyone do needs it. to come and do this and they didn't obviously take into account that has a differential impact on people. But what I'd say, I mean, if you look back at 2019, it was interesting because Extinction Rebellion in the polling was very unpopular. But what happened throughout 2019 is the polling showed consistently that public interest in climate went up and up and up and up and up and that was to do with extinction rebellion so it basically meant that even though often people found them irritating and annoying it forced people to think about climate and the climate emergency and i think that politicized a lot of people just because it forced a discussion and debate i mean when i end up often because just a pile like you know often when i do good morning britain at some god earthly hour but we'll often end up they'll say well, uh, you know, often, they just up oil is one of their favourite things to, to just throw in, like, something's happened last night, they've invaded some, like, the Wimbledon or whatever. And they go, well, everyone's hates them. And I'm like, well, and, and then I'll just go on about the climate emergency and go, see, they've won. Because, I've, I've for, you know, they forced a discussion on a, on, a, on a TV show. And I don't think we should belittle that because consciousness raising and forcing discussions about the climate emergency is a precondition to people organising and getting involved and mobilising. So I do think they've actually politicised a lot of people just by forcing it um, on the agenda. And I don't think it would have got those... We wouldn't have had those discussions without them. Um, but the fact is, look, I mean, my view is... I'm sure a lot of people share this, which is under capitalism, and certainly the breed of capitalism we have now, it is not possible to resolve the climate emergency. So obviously we need a much broader movement that links together different struggles with climate being the existential one facing human existence. Um, so, so in the sense, no, you know, obviously just a pile of extinction rebellion haven't created a mass revolutionary socialist movement to overthrow the form of capitalism we have then obviously they haven't succeeded because I don't think we'll be able to tackle it in a way that I think prevents mass calamity. But they have made it a central issue which 
the next generation, particularly a politicised younger generation, take as an article of faith. And I don't think particularly younger millennials and Gen Z would take the climate emergency as an article of faith were it not for the struggles of Extinction Rebellion and Just Stop Oil. And things like Greta Thunberg and that, those whole movements. Uh, Moya? I just want to say, I think the campaign of direct action actually has led to a revival of direct action with other struggles and you're seeing that linked up you saw Greta Thunberg you know talking about Palestine the other day you're seeing all these different forms of struggles within the workers movement within say Palestine um kind of actually start linking together in a way I haven't seen personally or maybe I just haven't had my eyes open for a long time and I think as well just the idea of like sitting in a road sitting in a station locking yourself to something has come back in a big way and i would tie that straight to extinction rebellion and then just stop oil just stop oil they have a single goal which is they will stop their actions when the government stop um funding fossil fuels and stop uh, agreeing to fossil fuels as part of government policy that hasn't happened they're still locking themselves to things they're doing exactly what they said so they have neither failed nor succeeded but i would say on the broader thing yeah they've, they've done consciousness raising I definitely think about the climate in a way that I didn't before. And I would say most of that is due to the direct action I see on the daily and the fact the conversation has been forced. Michael, what do you think it would take for either an incoming Labour government or this Conservative government to actually have more ambitious climate commitments? I mean... Biden pushed through the Inflation Reduction Act, which was an incredible bit of legislation. You just name it something completely different and smuggle in all of this like green infrastructure funding. It's fucking sick. Um, and yet there's little indication that that's going to be the direction of travel in this country. Um, so what would it take, I guess, to, to force the issue um, for our political leadership? Or am I wrong? And is Keir Starmer actually a lot better on climate than I'm giving him credit for? I'd say it's the one thing where we don't exactly know. You know, if, if there were going to be something positive, because people didn't really expect Biden to do that either, you know. Um, so I'm not completely despondent when it comes to Keir Starmer and climate change. And that's partly because I'm, I don't really buy into the whole, you know, we'll, we'll have an, an incredible, disastrous climate catastrophe unless we overthrow capitalism. I think if that were the case... God, we're screwed. Um, I'm, I, this is where I am more of a techno-optimist. I'm almost into geoengineering to some degree. Um, I think probably... Like we paint every building white. Well, I think we're going to at least have to brighten some clouds, uh, which means... You, so, well, what, you, 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 uh, you, you, you drop... Uh, Does this make sense to anyone else? Sounds like a Kate Bush song. Yeah, yeah. So what you do is you, you drop very tiny water droplets or you sort of push them up via shipping and then that brightens the clouds over key regions such as the North Pole. And then that reflects heat back into the atmosphere so that then um, the, the North Pole, what do we call it? The Arctic. I'd sound a bit more realistic if I was not the North. And then Santa <laughs> comes out with his yeah, elves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe he could do it while he's delivering presents. Uh, but no, I think geoengineering is going to be a very big thing very soon. Um, and I, I, I do also think that, you know, we have... I listen to David Wallace-Wells a lot on this. So he, he wrote that sort of very catastrophizing book uninhabitable earth which was like very scary to read and basically what he says is that the science is in line with him but actually the politics has moved much faster than he expected and his analysis which i pretty much share is that we are moving in the right direction we're just not moving nearly fast enough 
So it's a little bit as if, you know, COVID comes, everyone recognizes it's going to come. We say, oh, we might need a vaccine. We might need some lockdowns, um, but let's do it in five years time. <laughs> you know, so you're sort of, everyone kind of knows what we need to do and it is possible, but there isn't the urgency that you need. Um, so I suppose, yeah, that, uh, that's why I, I think it's, it's how, do you, how does one bring the urgency of COVID to the question of climate? Um, and I, I think that's kind of what we're missing. And it does involve like a lot of investment in green energy. I don't necessarily think it involves the overthrow of capitalism. I mean, how much do you buy the idea that we can have action on climate change, which does significantly arrest or inhibit or prevent ecological collapse with our patterns of consumption staying the same? And when I say we, I'm talking about the human species we. I know that like no one in this room has the carbon footprint of a billionaire unless there's a billionaire in this room, in which case, please donate to Navara Media. <laughs> um, but I do sometimes think that there is the optimism of a Green New Deal, and the thing that it's trying to obscure is that the amount that I consume as a person in the global north, the amount that I buy, will have to significantly decrease because I'm gobbling up an unfair share of the carbon budget compared to, say, someone in Bangladesh or sub-Saharan Africa. I don't know. I mean we are decoupling growth from emissions. So it is the case that emissions are pretty much stabilized and growth is still continuing. I mean, the bigger issue is for the developing world. And I'm, I'm very much in favor of everyone in the world getting a bit rich. Um, so, so I think the, the degrowth narrative to me isn't particularly persuasive. So what we've got to talk about is how do we as quickly as possible move to a system whereby we can all have um, very fabulous qualities of life without it destroying the planet and, our, and, our, and all of our lives. Um, Owen, you're the one who made the point that you've got to overthrow capitalism to get action on climate crisis. You're going to have to. You're going to have to rebut your friend over here. No, I don't mean that. No, what I mean is the the problem we face now is not that we're going to stop a climate disaster. That's going to happen. There will be disastrous consequences. Now, whatever we do, it's a lagging indicator. If we suddenly had net zero right now, we would still have disastrous consequences for a long time. The question is how big the catastrophe is that we face. And I think as things stand, uh, if you look at the indicators, a lot of them are far worse than were predicted, often by very pessimistic climate scientists. That's the problem. Um, and, and so when I talk about, you know, getting rid of, it's not that we'll all die. I don't think that was ever a realistic possibility unless there was going to be the worst possible um, uh, scenario, which is basically have this constant positive feedback loop and you end up like Venus. I don't think that's likely, hopefully, but you could still end up with an, un with an unnecessary catastrophe which imperils the lives of millions of people. And I think that in itself is something that we have to fight against. And I think if you look now um, at you know, the indicators and in terms of what the predictions are in terms of drought, famine, um, extreme weather events, then they are worse than often very pessimistic climate scientists thought even five years ago. So that's my view. And that's why I think you need... And we have to argue, as the left, for the, more, for the most drastic measures possible. Um, because, you know, I mean, this is a case of... If it isn't quite as catastrophic as we thought it was, then at least we can build... A, a, you know, a society that fuses climate justice and economic justice, and we will all benefit from that. So, no, I get, I take your point. I don't think when we talk about the worst case scenario, we're actually talking about Armageddon and the end of human existence, but we are talking about large sections of the world becoming uninhabitable and that putting huge pressures on human civilization. And I don't think we should, you know, we should be clear about that. That's my view. Any final comment, Walker? 
That's why we should brighten the clouds. And requisition the jets. <laughs> requisition the jets and brighten the clouds. <sighs> I don't know what you guys are talking about half the time. <laughs> so for our, for our final subject, I think that this was going to be completely unavoidable. The scale of the devastation in Gaza, I think, has taken everyone by surprise, even the most pessimistic people who've been keeping an eye on what's been going on in Palestine over the years. It's undeniable that Israel has significantly changed the facts on the ground, has carried out a program of ethnic cleansing in the north of Gaza, meaning that millions of people are stuck in the south of the Strip, unable to cross at Rafa into Egypt, unable to return to their homes in the north, and not even able to find safety, as the south is also under constant bombardment. At present, over 15,000 people, Palestinians, have been killed. Over 6,000 of those are children, and the number is likely to be much higher due to the near total collapse of Gaza's healthcare infrastructure. And I personally, having covered this story as part of Navarra Live, having followed the news cycle over the past two months, there are lots of things that I've changed my mind about. Some of the ways in which I understood the conflict have changed. Some of the ways in which I've um, understood um, the Israeli state has changed. I thought that Israel would be a lot more inhibited by public opinion in Western nations. That's clearly not true. And so I guess in that spirit, Owen, I want to start with you. And, and I want to ask you if two things in particular have changed for you, because I was rereading your book, This Land, and there are two bits which I disagreed with, which for a whole book is pretty good going. Um, but I suppose it's when you were talking about um, how to characterize Israel. And at one point you say, the brutality of Israel's occupation is undeniable, but the situation was and is fundamentally different from those projects of European-style settler colonialism. And I believe the point that you're making is because they're not flying a flag of an imperial motherland back home, it's not European-style settler colonialism. I suppose the thing I want to ask you is, in, in light of everything that's happened in the last two months, do you still feel that the label of settler colonialism is inappropriate for Israel? Or have you shifted a little on it? No, I said it was a settler colonial state, but of a different type. And the reason I said that we had to engage... Well, the point I was trying to make, because the, the problem with that chapter is it wasn't about the history of Palestine and Israel, it was about the history of the left's relationship. Because, you know, uncomfortably for the left, um, when Israel was founded, the left supported the foundation of Israel, and disregarded... It was the one thing Soviet Russia and America both agreed yeah, on. The first country on earth, I mean, whether we obviously just throw Soviet, the Soviet Union to the international left at the time, the first country to recognise Israel de jure was the Soviet Union, uh, which armed Israel, um, and the view of much of the left at the time, and it became a signature view of the left at the time, uh, was often quite a racist view, which was this is a sea of Arab despotism, um, and this was a socialist project, and these are refugees who had fled a genocide, and therefore you shouldn't critically support the foundation of Israel. And the Labour left, people like, I mean, Tony Benn, as late as, as 1980, wrote in his diaries that he opposed the foundation of a Palestinian state because he opposed the PLO as, as terrorists. Um, and, you know, Eric Heffer, big stalwart of the left, you could see him in when Neil Kinnock did his big speech in 1985 denouncing um, Militant, and Eric Heffer famously walked off stage in protest, was a big 
left-wing Zionist. I mean, th th it was only... It was only after, particularly, you know, the occupation of the West Bank and Gaza that the left shifted its relationship, and particularly as well the invasion of Lebanon um, in the 1980s and the way the, the Israel repudiated whatever you might think about its, you know, socialist pretenses, but became an overtly neoliberal militarized state. But it, the point I was making is, you know, the difference was, which, which obviously I wouldn't, obviously haven't shifted my view on, is you had to engage with the fact that before the war, Zionism was a minority current amongst Jewish people. And in the aftermath of the Holocaust, it became a dominant one. Um, and the collective trauma of the Jewish people is something we have to engage in. In terms of this, though, in terms of what's happened, look, I mean, you know, I mean, obviously, this is not about our emotional well-being, but I think this is the first time in my life. It's just going through something where you, you just want to go and find a field somewhere and scream every day for an hour out of rage and grief. Me and Michael spent Tuesday night with this lovely guy called um, Ahmed al Nook, who is co-founder of We Are Not Numbers, Palestinian journalist. 23 members of his family have been wiped out. He just texted me before we came on stage and another, his close colleagues just been wiped out by an Israeli strike. Um, you know, 1% of Gaza's population has been wiped out in, in, in seven weeks, uh, in the first seven weeks. And the numbers, it's really important to say, the official numbers are underestimates. They don't include the people buried under rubble, thousands of them buried under rubble, um, who won't be identified for a very long time. And the history of warfare always suggests that the vast majority of people in war do not die because of the violent deaths. They die because of things like the collapse of public health care and the collapse of society. And it is extremely rare uh, for a society to be so comprehensively dismantled and destroyed as Gaza has been in such a short space of time. I don't think there is really any modern precedence for what's happened um, to Gaza. Um, and I think, look, you know, my central view as we went into this was Israel is an apartheid state, which obviously practices settler colonialism, um, that we should support boycott, divestment and sanctions and, 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 and so on. I think the reason this is such a salutary lesson, it's not like I'm shocked. Um, well, I'm not, I'm maybe shocked, but not surprised because for example, I'm, I'm not, I have no illusions in the British media. <laughs> I've worked there for 12 years uh, and you know, I've got the gray hairs here to show it. Um, but you know, I knew it was a racist industry, but the open display of anti-Palestinian racism, there isn't even a pretense that Palestinian life has any meaning or worth. I mean, they might as well just come out and say, we don't think Palestinian life has any meaning or worth whatsoever. Um, and I think that level of just outright racism is something which, if I'm boiling with rage, the consequences of that um, for those in the Middle East and elsewhere, and people in the you know minorities in the West, those consequences are going to be felt for a very long time. I do think you know a really interesting thing Naomi Klein said, just in terms of the point you were making um, a few weeks ago. I saw an interview, and she talked about how. In a sense, it was almost like the West, the Western imperialism, accepted the establishment of Israel as a form of reparations uh, to Jewish people, where you'd get, an, where there was almost like an opt out with Israel, where as uh, the global North was forced into retreat with colonialism and imperialism because of the struggle of those colonized people, um, that Israel would be given an opt out and allowed to continue to practice those as 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 reparations for what the Europeans did. Uh, to the Jewish population. And I think you can partly see that being played out in horrendous real time. Um, yeah, I think the reason, what's really cemented my view about boycott, divestment, sanctions. I actually interviewed, we're talking about AI. There's, I interviewed a brilliant investigative journalist uh, for 972 Mag, 
um, who, took, who went through the war machine, the Israeli war machine. Uh, they, he got leaks about how it works in practical terms, about you know the calculations made. Now, it used to be dozens of civilian casualties per military target. Now, it's hundreds of, of, of civilians that he said, if a three-year-old girl dies in a house, it's because someone knew that was going to happen and they decided it was an acceptable cost, that kind of thing. Um, but he said, you know, you know, he, he said, look, the fact is, in Israeli society, the polling shows that 65% of Israeli Jews think that the Israeli military isn't bombing enough. There isn't enough firepower being exacted. And the point he made, and the Israeli peace movement, as embattled as they are now, are more courageous than ever, is that we desperately, desperately need now a much stronger movement across the world to, to put huge pressure, and that means a much stronger boycott, divestment, and sanctions regime, because we are seeing now you know, I do think we, we need to talk, obviously, about the language of genocide. I've interviewed, I interviewed Raz Sigal, an Israeli-American um, professor of genocide and Holocaust studies, and the very clear point he said to me is it's very rare for intent to be so overt. There's not, it's not subtle. You know, when you get Benjamin Netanyahu calling Amalek in the Bible, in which the, uh, the Amalek nation attacks the Israelites and God says to the Israelites, go and kill all men, women, children, and livestock, uh, where you get uh, the, the, the finance minister saying the West Bank's full of two million Nazis, uh, where, you know, you get, you get, you know, turn Gaza into a city of tents um, um, that would, you know, it's damage, not accuracy. You know, the, the, it's so overt, the, the, the language. No innocence in Gaza, said Amnigal Lieberman, the former uh, foreign minister, still very influential in, in Likud. You, you know, it's genocidal in its intent, and there's nothing stopping them. There's no pressure from any Western government, despite occasional flailing around. So it just shows what it's, all it's cemented for me is, unless we build now the strongest possible movement around boycott, divestment, and sanctions across the world, we are going to see the elimination of the Palestinian people through violent means and ethnic cleansing. And, you know, we're running out of time and we just need to build that movement. That's what I've become, you know, that's my stronger view than ever. Um, Michael, within Navarra Media, I'd probably say that you're the, one of the people that's followed the story the closest, probably because you host most often for Navarra Live. So you've been paying attention to the news cycle on a day by day, very granular basis. Over the past two months and putting together everything you know before that as well, if you had to suggest or predict the most likely endgame outcome in Gaza, how would you characterise it? What the Israelis wanted to do on October the 8th, I mean, what they wanted to do for a long time, but what they you know, thought they had the opportunity to do on October the 8th was clear out Gaza. They, they wanted Gazans to be put into the Sinai, um, and they still are sort of touring TV studios saying, what if every country in the world took 10,000 Gazans? That would empty Gazan. So th that is their plan. Um, and I, I think they still have that in the back of their minds as a possibility. So every time they sort of make the humanitarian crisis worse and bomb more and more parts of Gaza, I think that's in the back of their mind. Well, one possibility is that life gets so miserable and they have a riot on the Rafah crossing and then the international community has to step in and say, look, Egypt, I know you don't want these people, but you're going to have to open that border and we're going to give you shed loads of money. So I think they are trying to force the hand of the international community to make that happen. By the way, the reason the Americans aren't particularly keen on that is because Egypt has an incredibly weak state and a very unpopular dictator, and his main opposition is the Muslim Brotherhood, who are to some degree allied with Hamas. So the Americans here aren't so much motivated by, I mean, you will probably know this, but they're not so motivated by sort of like their humanitarian concern, but they think if all the Gazans move to Egypt, then the Sisi regime could collapse, and then they don't 
they, they can't predict what will happen next. They quite like CC because even though he's a terrible um, leader... Yeah, I mean, they the supported shit, a coup against the Muslim Brotherhood once in the last exactly. decade. They, they don't, don't want to do it again. They don't want to have to do it again. Uh, it took too much of that. It was too, took too much bandwidth. <laughs> Um, so they prefer to keep that one off the table. Is that a tech term, Michael? So the, uh, yeah, I use that phrase all the time, actually. I like it. Um, but anyway, um, they, yeah, what's going to happen, I'm not sure. It's, uh, that's the Israeli end goal. The Americans, I think, have recognized that that can't happen. And so there is some sort of stalemate which doesn't really make any sense to anyone. Like the end state, I don't think anyone's really chosen one that seems to make much sense. I, I think what the Americans want to happen is you have Hamas removed by military means, um, then the people can sort of go back to their cities and rebuild them, but this will all be under the auspices of some either international body or the Palestinian Authority, which the Israelis don't want. The problem with that is that it's not gonna be particularly acceptable for the people of Gaza. And also, even if it began as acceptable for the people of Gaza, say for the majority of the people of Gaza, there would still be a significant minority who want to start a war with Israel for obvious reasons. And then you would have to have a, a type of governance which is so authoritarian because you're so desperate to stop anyone fighting. Because the moment any Gazans fight Israel again, they're going to bomb again. So you, the only option is to have an authoritarian government after this, which is way more authoritarian than Hamas, because they, are, they will be tasked at the threat of you know, complete destruction with making sure there is no resistance to Israeli rule. I mean... Moya, before we move on to the Q&A, and I know this is a big question, but I will encourage you to answer it very quickly. Um, one of the things that we've talked a lot about together since you started working for Navarra Media especially is about the role of identity politics, the primacy of subjective feelings, and that as minoritized people, we kind of get to say, well, my lived experience is this, therefore it is a political reality. And one of the ways in which we're seeing that play out now is around the idea that certain expressions of Palestinian solidarity, whether it's a Palestinian flag or a slogan like from the river to the sea, these things are anti-Semitic or enough people feel that they're anti-Semitic that we shouldn't use them. Um, one, I guess, where do you stand on that and how do you, how do you um, engage with those feelings? And two, has, does this sort of expose the inherent weakness of liberal identity politics that actually sometimes lived experience isn't the same as political reality and sometimes you've got to push back? One, I don't engage with it because it's bollocks and we've entertained it for too long. 17,000 people are dead. I think 1.8 million displaced. I'm not engaging with that. Um, two, yeah, of course it shows the limit of liberal identity politics. What I will say about the situation in Palestine is, again, like Just Stop Oil, we are seeing a more cohesive political response to it from the workers, from the labour movements, because our politicians are not just being useless, they're actively complicit in a genocide. Uh, their cowardice, has they have blood all over their hands and it won't wash off. Um, but what we are seeing from grassroots is a joining up again of movements, of solidarity struggles, even a, a reawaking of international solidarity struggles that I don't think, again, we've seen on this level for a long time. And I'll give you an example. Today, across the UK, there were four different pickets, right? Pickets of armed factories. I think there was one in Dorset, there was one in Brighton, there was one, I want to say, in Glasgow. Does anyone know where the fourth was? Uh, it was Lancashire. Lancashire. 
But these pickets didn't just happen in the UK. They also happened in the Netherlands. They happened in France. And they happened in another country that I can't remember. And I want to say Portugal, but if anyone knows, put the hand up. Um, and that, that right there, that is cohesive international struggle. We've been seeing this time and time again. We've been seeing, you know, people on jet skis in Australia blockading. Jet skis the sick. jet skis are fucking sick. Um, we've seen, like, people tying themselves to ports. We are seeing this action from workers. And there is was, you know, in an anti-apartheid movement, there was a very clear involvement of trade unions there was a very clear like international struggles these actions have happened because palestinian trade unions have said we need you to stand in solidarity and do practical stuff so yes you know we're seeing the limit of liberal identity politics it's very hard not to see the limit of liberal identity politics when people are like oh you know this chant about liberation is anti-semitic and it's like are you seeing what's happening on the ground are you seeing what's happening right now like this is not washing as a way to try and tamp down the struggle for liberation and struggle for resistance in on behalf of Palestinian people but on, on the flip side the side where I'm like yes this is an opportunity to keep mobilizing this is where we should be putting our energy stop focusing on what they're saying about our slogans like get out there on the picket lines because that's where it's actually happening that's where the solidarity movement is reigniting in my experience one of the nicest things about Navarre in a way is that I don't feel that anyone thought of themselves as being like opinion leaders in some way. It's a whole lot of people who kind of tripped up and fell into journalism somehow. And I think that that's why I like working with you all. It means that there is a level of doubt and questioning and skepticism that actually makes it a politically refreshing place to be. And so when it comes to going, how, how, how do I speak up when it feels really scary? I mean, the fact is that still in my personal life, I'm so conflict averse, it's crazy. Like, if I can feel an argument brewing, like, between me and my partner or me and my mom, I just sort of go dead like a fish, just sort of, like, hope that no one will notice me if I just stop moving and breathing, um, which is really different from how I conduct my political life. And the reason why I feel stronger in my political life is because it's a reflection of all of these political and professional relationships that I have here in this wonderful organization, which leads me to go to navaramedia.com forward slash support. And I'm only half joking because we didn't, we didn't mean to do this. None of us thought, yeah, the thing I want to be is a journalist and the thing that I really want to do is, you know, be just like Laura Koonsberg or Robert Peston. None of us fucking wanted that. Like we are all journalists against our will. <laughs> Um, and I think that that's important because it means that we look at media not as a opportunity for career advancement. I think that all of us, though there is pluralism and our visions of what it means to be left-wing, there's a lot of difference. We see changing the media as so essential to changing the politics that we've ended up with because if politics is a reflection of class forces in society, so is media. And look at who the fuck is working in that. Um, so... We can't do any of this without your support. We literally can't. The majority of our funding comes from our supporters and we're never, ever, ever going to put up a paywall. We just don't believe in it. So we want to keep making things free to access. We still want to put out stuff which can be accessible by anyone who needs it or could find some value from it. But in order to do that, we need you guys. So thank you for coming. Thank you to those of you who are our supporters. And thank you, of course, to our amazing panel. Woo!